you're preaching from your book. Chase, did you pray? You didn't pray. You did pray. Dang, that was really good. Okay. Thank you, brother. I think the kids, when they were in here, the kids have been in here for a long time. <laughs> Chased by the kids in this morning because of all the mayhem. And uh, I think they were messing with me. I did it. Okay. Kids, you're awesome. We love you. You're such a blessing. Without you, we wouldn't have any future. Okay. That's not in the sermon. Um. Our Living Hope. We are starting a new series. It's, it's a new day. It's our first time here on a Sunday, and we are uh, starting a Sojourners in Exile series. We're just going to walk through First Peter. So I got to just stop. When you start preaching, you, when I start preaching, I get tunnel vision. And I just kind of, everything else goes away. I just want to sit here and just say, I love y'all. It's a blessing to be here. I just want to sit in this moment. Thank you for being part of this. It's so good. It's so good. Okay, so. Peter writes this, Peter the Apostle, one of the three closest of Jesus' uh, 12 apostles, 12 disciples. Um, he wrote this letter from Rome sometime in the probably the early, almost certainly the early 60s A.D. from Rome, about a generation after Jesus was crucified and risen. Um, okay, so he, this, a lot of this intro material I took from Edmondson. This is, so Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to churches in Turkey, in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor at that, at that time, um, was, his purpose was not a first announcement about the words and works of Jesus. That was really, Edmund, Edmund Klein reminds us, was really the, the Gospel of Mark, which is known as Peter's Gospel, um, because they traveled together. And so uh, Mark writes, have Peter having told him about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, there, that's really Peter's voice through, through Mark. So Peter isn't writing primarily to tell us about the words and works of Jesus. Neither, um, like Paul, this, is he addressing a local church and so, a sort of situation and a problem that's arisen in that church. That's, that's most of Paul's letters. And, and he's saying, okay, here's a problem that's arising as you seek to, to, to worship God through the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. How, what is your life supposed to look like? That's what Paul does. Um, Peter's not doing that here. Rather, his purpose is to deepen the understanding of the whole Christian church, in particular in Asia Minor, and then through them to the whole church, to us today, 2,000 years later, um, so that believers may, here it is, may face the testings that await them with strong hope in Jesus, with strong hope in Jesus. Um, so Peter recognizing, uh, is, is recognizes rather that um, the Christians to whom he writes are not in, in Turkey are not just transients spending the night in the place of, of their sojourn, Clowney says, um, but like the exiles addressed by the prophet Jeremiah centuries before in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. Um, the people of Israel were in Babylon. They were exiled to Babylon. They were not in their, um, in the place, in the, in, the, in the promised land that God had given them. Um, like those exiles addressed by Jeremiah, um, Peter is saying to the church, that they must be ready to live among the Gentiles for months and years. So really what he's doing is um, he's concerned about their lifestyles as resident aliens. So he's saying you're, this is not your home, at least not this, this earth as it is, but God has called you to be in and among people that are far from the Lord in order to preach the gospel to them and to live in every single way in a countercultural way, in the middle of that culture, not removed from that culture. 
knowing that this, as it is, is not your final destination, right? And so he's really writing to, uh, we call that the Sojourners and Exile series, but really to resident aliens, and we're going to get much more into that um, in, in just a second here. So that's actually my first point to jump into point one in this uh, first sermon here in this new series, in this new space. Um, resident alien, in this, in this sermon, our living hope, Jesus Christ. Point one, if you're taking notes, resident alien. So Jesus, what does Paul, what does Peter, I'm, man, whenever I'm preaching the New Testament, I so often say, what does Paul say? So if I say that, just, just know this is Peter writing this, even though I said Paul. Um, Peter's telling us that Jesus' resurrection makes us resident aliens, or another way you could translate that, the word alien, sojourner, is, is a, a exact a way to put the word alien. So a sojourners who stay. We are sojourners called to stay here. Um, the word translated exiles means resident aliens, like I've said, or, or, or resident sojourners. Um, Tim Keller takes the phrase, it's alliterative, so maybe a bit, a bit, a bit easier to understand. Aliens alongside is the, is the way that the word exactly translates. Um, even aliens walking alongside those that we've called to be uh, next to that are not part of this new creation if they don't know Jesus. But we want them to be, and we're called to live right up alongside of them, rubbing shoulders with them, but the new creation in us and moving through us and outward to them and to our community. So, so there's a tension here that God has always called his people to, Israel under the old covenant and the church, the new Israel, including, and that's really the language that Peter uses here, including Jew and Gentile in the new covenant sealed by Jesus' blood. And just as a quick sidebar, we won't get into this as much here, but because in chapter 2, he, de- he delves even more into it, and we've got other material to look at. But Peter's use of Old Testament Israel language here, where he says, to the elect exiles, that's very Old Testament Israel language. And of the dispersion, that's very Israel language, right? Um, Peter's use of Old Testament Israel language here is applied to a largely Gentile church. This is a largely Gentile church that he's writing to in Turkey, and um, it's Jewish and Gentile, though. And so he's applying that language that was reserved for Israel to the church, and he's calling, in no uncertain terms, he's calling the church the Israel of God. It's Jew and Gentile through faith in Jesus. You cannot be of the Israel, of the people of God, and reject God's own son, Jesus Christ. He is the way in. Um, And so um, that's just a quick sidebar, but... A couple of things here, Peter is very clear about the fact that we're aliens, or we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're not of this world, we're of a different kingdom. We have, literally, we've been born a second time, those who look to Jesus through his death and resurrection for them, and to the new creation that he started through his resurrection, and to his current reign, which will last forever, and which is spreading out over the earth like waters cover the sea. But we're part of a different kingdom. We're part of a new birth, walking around among literally those who are spiritually dead outside of Christ, that we've been made alive through faith in Jesus. Um, We're no longer captive to sin, although we still sin. We're not enthralled to sin. It doesn't have power over us like it once did. And death and the menace of death and the fact that death, as of Paul, if it hangs over all things, and if death is the end, not just for us, but for the universe. If the universe ends in a deep death, then there is no meaning. But so many, and we'll get more into this, so many today believe that 
what we can see is all there is, that we're all stardust and everything is headed toward a heat death, in which case that's why there's so much despair. Because if that is the end, then logically nothing that seems like it has meaning actually has any meaning. And as Christians, Peter says, in this culture that was at least as hopeless, this Roman culture was at least as hopeless as ours is. We're trending that direction because whenever belief in an eternal God, certainly who has stepped into history in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whenever that is, whenever that is um, moved to the side and, that's, and God is not believed in anymore, hope, hope fades. And we become a despairing people. Um, but Peter has said that we're aliens here. We're sojourners. He, that's what he, the language he uses in verse 1 here. Um, let me just read this. You will not be surprised. C.S. Lewis quote. He says this. He says, the Christians say, and he's talking about how we're really exiles here. Okay? The Christian says, creatures are, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. You may have heard this quote. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. Now, it doesn't mean that baby has food. It means, it, it means there's such a thing as food. That's why the baby's hungry, right? A duckling wants to swim. May not be swimming at the time, but because a duckling wants to swim, there is such a thing as, as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience, Lewis says, in this world can satisfy. Now, man, remember, he's speaking about the fact that we feel displaced. We, we feel this sense of exile. We feel it keenly. Okay? Um, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that is not proof that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. In other words, we need to see these things, these pleasures, um, and these bright spots in life, a beautiful day like this even, a song that we hear, something that we taste, an experience that we have, a relationship, not as the thing in itself that I'm made for, but a pointer to a greater thing that I'm made for, not as the end full stop, right? So we need to see these things as arrows to the, to the one that made these pleasures that are supposed to point to him. But what does sin do? It causes us to cling to those things and say, no, this is the thing. That's idolatry. So that was all me. Back to Lewis. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. So Peter calls us this. He says, hey, we're exiles, we're sojourners. I'm going to tweak that some because I'm not satisfied with the idea that we're simply passing through. That's not, that's not what Peter's saying. So let me step into this. He's also, again, in this phrase saying, but we're, we're aliens, but we're aliens alongside. We're sojourners, but we're resident sojourners. What does that mean? Let's talk about the resident or the alongside bit now, by contrast. We're in the world. We've been placed in the world, very much so. But we haven't hitched our lodestar, sort of to tuck into what C.S. Lewis talks about there. We haven't hitched our lodestar to the things of this world. Uh, but we're not just passing through. We know this will not be our forever home. Hey, at least not as it is. We will be here on planet Earth when, heaven com- when Jesus comes again and brings heaven down forever. But it won't be as it is. It won't be broken, full of sin and evil, full of a partial, alloyed allegiance to Jesus as king. It won't be like that forever. It'll be remade, right? 
Um, it'll, be, it'll be our forever home, but we know it. So, okay, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is God writing through his pro- speaking through his prophet Jeremiah to his people, not in the land that he's promised to them. They've been exiled through their disobedience. They're living in a foreign land. And sort of their impulse is to be like, well, I'm just going to la- act like I'm just passing through. I'm not going to unpack my bag, and I'm not going to commit to this place because we're away from home. We're away from the land God called us to. They're not going to get anything from us. We're not going to commit here at all. We're not going to put down roots. What does Jeremiah say? He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. We're obeying that command. We're about to have a couple kids this in this congregation in, in a month's time or less. But seek the welfare, verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, but seek the welfare, God says through his prophet, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For, here it is, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's strong. That is strong. As you commit to the city and as it prospers, so will you. It's almost the opposite of God saying, hey, just pass through. This isn't, your, this isn't your final destination. That's evacuationist, and that, by the way, is a sign of heresy. And the two of the greatest Christian heresies, Mormonism and Islam, that's the way that they see the afterlife. It's a very, it's a very evacuationist, let's just get out of here sort of. And there are minor Christian heresies that are also, uh, that, that tie into that. That is not at all, think about the incarnation. Think about the creation. God said everything is good, and did he give up on his creation? No, in fact, he took on flesh. And bone, and he came down here and committed to it as powerfully as he possibly could have. Okay, so if you just think about to sort of bring it down to the put the cookies on the bottom shelf, Jesus did this for us, like salt, right? The salt is a preservative, and it's a and it adds and it brings out the flavor of something. And salt, we're called salt, Christ followers, those who have been born again with the living hope of the resurrected Christ living in us as we look at Him and believe on Him by faith. He calls us the salt of the world, salt of the earth. And salt is to be spread out over meat. If it's all in one place, I heard Christine Kane, a teacher from Australia, say this once. If it's all, if there's a lump of salt on the steak and we all just hang out together in our holy huddle waiting for heaven, that's disgusting. The rest of the steak is insipid and that bite is going to be terrible because it's going to have all the salt in it. No, salt is supposed to be spread out over. We come together here on a Sunday to be sent out and spread out into our various jobs and communities we are the church in the world we're called to be a preservative rubbed into the steak right that's what jesus did for us that's the example he set and he's in us and he's sent he's saying he's sending us out saying go across the street across the world right um the more it's rubbed in by the way the more effective it is in preserving and bringing out flavor okay so get to know your neighbors get to know your coworkers. um get involved in their lives um light same thing. Um, we're called the light of the world, and light's the same way. It's the most effective, and it stands out the most, and it's most imme- and it's the most needed. What in a bright room? No, in darkness. And the darker an area is, the more beautiful and life-giving light is. If there, if you're in a cave and there's a, a single light, it's like it's it's literally it lights you. You just follow that. You get as close to that as you can, and that's your way out, right? Um, 
only roaches and rats and other evil things. Sorry if you like roaches. Are, are repelled by light, right? Um, Tim Keller says, the church should be the kind of place, I'm not quoting directly, the kind of people, rather, excuse me, not a place, that so transforms a community through the love of Jesus, through its service and sacrifice, through, through our lifestyle, through the gospel that we preach in our word and deed. You know, we, we preach, we better be preaching the gospel through the way we live, but also we have to preach the gospel with words. We have to. We have to articulate the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, he says, we should so be this kind of people that transforms a community through his love, through our service and sacrifice, that people who don't even trust and follow Jesus say something like, we can't imagine this community without them. Like if you take the church out of the picture, the community really starts to look worse for the wear and starts to suffer because, because we just make, wherever we go, we make it better because what we have is not our own. We share it just like Christ did with us. He became, he who was rich became poor that we might become rich. That's what our lives look like. Um, and so he even goes on to say like, hey, the community would have less joy. There'd be less striving in every way. Even he goes, he says the taxes would even be higher. Even people should be able to connect the dots so much. It's like this church does so much for the community that if they were gone, our taxes would be higher. Man, I love that. Um, okay, are we like that is a question that I just have here. And I would say we're a small people growing, growing in Christ and growing in number. Uh, by God's grace, but I see that. I see traces of that, and one of our prayers is just for ourselves and, and for our community and for others is that we would see that more and more and more and that God would blow on that ember. Um, let's pray that it spreads. Let's sink our roots down deep, but stay fixated on enjoying Jesus, not even on the fruit, because if you focus on the fruit, eventually you're, gonna, you're not going to have any fruit. If you focus on staying connected to the vine, to Jesus, and the fruit comes, right? So enjoy Jesus. It's in our mission, right? It's the first thing in our mission, enjoy Jesus. And join him in the renewal of all things. And I see that with you guys. I see that with, I mean, we have, in this small congregation, we have lawyers. And this is just a, we have much more than this, but a smattering. Lawyers, engineers, electricians, accountants, piano teachers, teachers of other things, department store workers, mailmen, mothers and fathers, students, neighbors, outdoor speaker, company founders, and on and on I could go, right? On and on I could go. And, and, and God has you where he has you to be salt and to be light and to be sojourners but resident sojourners, aliens alongside. Um, we ought to be, because of our great love for what God has made and for the people that God has put um, in our pathway, we ought to be grieved by it, the most grieved by sin and evil. We're not content to see these things stay as they are because of our great love, right, through Christ. Um, Christopher Watkin, in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, says this. This is really perceptive. He says, it's not accurate to characterize Christians as refugees. Refugees, get this, stay with me. Refugees are fleeing from their homeland because there's something wrong with it. So there's a sort of, there's a, neg there's a general negative, like I'm leaving this bad thing. That's what a refugee is, right? Christians are heading towards their homeland because there is something right with it. And we have that homeland within us. Who is our home if not the living God in Christ? And so who cannot be taken from us, which really, by the way, is point two. And I'm saying that partly because it's going to be shorter. But point two, our living hope, is that Jesus Christ, when it comes down to it, Jesus Christ is our living hope that cannot be taken from us and who is making all things new, starting with us and spreading out from us into everything that we touch by his grace, right? So he says Christians 
are heading towards our homeland because there's something right with it. We are not seeking refuge from violence. We are passing through violence on our way to meet the Prince of Peace. And I added, as sojourners in here, as sojourners, we are not on the move because we are pushed away from our homeland. We are on the move because we are being drawn towards it. So we're a people who, even if we're denouncing this, that, and the other, it's ultimately for the positive of, yes, but it's because this is not as God intended. There's a better way. And his name is Jesus, and he's come to restore all things, partially now and one day when he returns in full. That is the gospel that we get to preach, and it's for anyone, and it's through the work of Jesus Christ. So we're not just passing through. We've settled in and seek the welfare of the city and this world, including our neighborhoods and workplaces, but neither are we perfectly at home here. Our citizenship, whether here in America or wherever you're a citizen, is secondary. It's real. Paul was a Roman citizen. He pressed on that some. It's real, but it's secondary. Our primary citizenship is in heaven, which Christ will bring down to earth through our praying and living uh, with Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, so we're not seeking to be out of the world. We're in it because he's called us to be in it as he was in it and as he is in it through his body. That's what his church is. That's what the church is, his Christ's body. Um, we are also not in the world and of the world, right? Ultimately, let me just put it like this before we move one more quote from Walken, and then we'll move to point two briefly. Um, we, w- the easy thing is to be at, uh, not of the world, not in the world, and not of the world. That's sort of the monk. Think about the monk. I'm not throwing shade on a monk right now. There's a lot of great things that happen in the monasteries. And, um, but, but that's not what we've been called to. We've been called uh, to be not, not in the world and not of the world, nor have we been called to be in the world, as we are, and of the world. Rather, we've been called to be in the world, salt on the snake, light in the darkness, in the middle of every, all the sin, all the evil, all the brokenness, family, workplace, neighborhood, you name it, incarnation, right in the middle of it, but also the more the West interest, not of it. It's countercultural. And the darker this world gets, the more the West pulls away from Christ, the brighter our light will shine and the more countercultural we will appear. As we point people to Jesus, the hope of all things. Let me finish this point with this quote from Christopher Walken. What this asymmetry means concretely, Walken says, is that Christians can neither pledge unconditional loyalty to the earthly city. So if it's going to hell in a handbasket, guess what? We grieve because, it, because we care about it, but we don't hitch our hope to it. I've seen so much of this where, like, your hope, the conf- you, people confuse, and I've done it. I speak for myself. The kingdom of America with the kingdom of God. Let's just take one example. So with ki- if America's going down, not only are you sad, you should be sad, but you're devastated because your hope is hooked to that. That's not us. Our citizenship here is secondary, but because our primary citizenship is with the Lord in heaven, and he cares about, he committed himself to death to this place and to us. We should care, but we have a hope that's unshatterable. We have an inheritance that's given to us, not earned. It was earned by Jesus and given to us freely through faith that is incorruptible. That's what Peter, that's, that's point two. That's what Peter talks about here. So, so he says, like the recipient, so he says, um, we can neither pledge unconditional loyalty to the earthly city nor abandon it altogether. Like the recipients of Jeremiah's letter, I'm able to settle down, marry, and plant vineyards, but I'm not to forget that I'm in exile far from my real home, or that my real home is coming. Jesus, he is my home, and he's bringing it here one day fully to remake, to remake earth um, by bringing heaven down and finishing the work that he started. Um, so that's, 
that's point one, right? We are resident uh, sojourners. We are aliens alongside. Point two, briefly, we, uh, we have a living hope, Peter goes on to say in verse three. We have this living hope, which is what makes us a countercultural and a different a people in the midst of this world that God's called us to. We have been born again to a living hope. The, 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 the world that Peter, as I said earlier, that Peter was writing in, um, was an inherit, it was, they were an inheritors of the Greeks. The Greeks were a, were a hopeless people. Their worldview, in short, was one of a circle. There was no such thing as linear time. There was no such thing as, as progress with an end. We're, we're so used to that as Westerners. That's a Judeo-Christian inheritance. There's a beginning by a beginner, and there's, we're headed somewhere, and that somewhere is good, and all things are going to be restored one day. That is a Judeo-Christian biblical heritage. The Greeks had a circular view of time. You can imagine the hopelessness that came along with the idea that there's really no progress. And that's why, and I know you've all in some way studied this, the Greeks were the, were the best at tragedy. We've all studied Greek tragedies. That's a tragic worldview. Um, it's a tragic worldview. E- even the Greek gods treated humans as playthings. Right? So it was a tragic worldview. And Peter's writing in this Roman, this late Roman imperial society in the early 60s AD. And the Romans inherited that worldview from the Greeks. You can kind of taste it a little bit when you hear Pilate when he's trying Jesus right before the cross. And he says, Jesus says, I am the truth. And, uh, and, P- and, and I'm paraphrasing Jesus. And Pilate says exactly, what is Pilate? What's Pilate's response to that? What is truth? Can you hear the jaded, tired, fatigued, depressed cynicism in that question? That was the Roman culture. What is truth? You could see that in our culture today, can't you? But we have a living hope. So we have suicide in our culture, depression's on the rise. There's a devaluing of life from, from, uh, from birth to grave, from abortion to euthanasia to self-mutilation to, to lawlessness to um, to alcoholism and drug abuse. There's, there's a hopelessness setting in. But into this hopelessness, Peter steps and we step as the body of Christ. Um, the living hope inserted himself. Peter was a lost man before Jesus came. Um, he stepped down into our darkness. He took that darkness into himself and he buried it. He crucified it and he buried it. He bore our sins on the cross. The curse that infects all of creation, he became that curse and was lifted up for us. Not to glory first, but to ignominy to shame, to the wrath of God in our place. And that old order, he crucified and buried, and he ended it to a certain degree. And so his rise is not just the rise of one man, it's the rise of a new creation. Uh, that's why over and over again in the New Testament, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, Paul, Paul, not Peter, got it right this time, he calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits. If we have any agriculturalists or farmers, anyone familiar with any of that at all in here, and you may have heard this, you probably have, you know that a first fruit is what you watch to see, okay, there's the first fruit, and there's more that's going to follow. Hopefully, there'll be a bumper crop. And Jesus is a guarantee because he's the first fruit of a whole new creation that will completely renew the old creation and displace all that is not hidden in him by faith. He is a guarantee of a bumper crop. He is the guarantee of a bumper crop where sin and its consequences, death and alienation from God have been completely removed. And, and Paul is saying, when we look to Jesus, that living hope comes and lives inside of us, the person of Christ by his spirit, and it takes us over and it renews us 
And it doesn't play out perfectly in our lives now, but when we see him face to face, we will be made as he is. And our, the new creation starts in us the minute we trust in him. And it starts to play itself out in our life, in our workplaces, in our, in our homes, with our families, with our enemies. Um, so a new order has begun. Christ's resurrection guarantees it, and it will overtake and outlast this old order, which is passing away. Um, there's this great, there's this play called No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre, who was, who was an existen- a French existentialist, smoked a lot of cigarettes, worked a lot. Um, his worldview was essentially that all you have is stardust, and there's death is the end. And so what we need to do is live valiantly and peer into the face of what's coming, which is an utter void and a yawning blackness and darkness, and just put on a brave face, stare into the void and scream at it and smile and then die, even though there's no meaning, pretend, live like there is meaning. And so he wrote this play, No Exit, and it's basically this utterly depressing play. And one of the lines in it is, you are your life and nothing else. When you end, it's all, it all ends. It's an absurd play, but act like, act like it's worth something. And he also says in the play, hell is other people. But he says, you are your life and nothing else. It's kind of the moral, yeah, this is, this is not a happy person. This is not a happy person. Although there's a rumor that he may have, he may have believed on Christ before the end, before he wrote the Bible. I don't know. But that's a, that's a different story. But he says, you are your life and nothing else. What, what is Peter saying here? He's telling this first century church in Asia Minor, um, north of the Taurus Mountains, he's telling them, you are his life. You are his life and nothing else. The life of Christ counts for you. The relationship Christ has with his father now counts for you. The sin that he paid for and did away with and the power that he broke and the everlasting life that he has now, he didn't do for you. He, already, he didn't do for himself. He already had all that. He paid for your sin. He brought you into relationship, perfect relationship with the Father. His righteousness is now being imputed to you. It counts for you, and you are being newly made. He's given you the spirit when you look to him. He's caused us to be born again. He's brought us. He is, not only has he brought us into this living hope, he is our living hope. Um, And he's given us, just briefly, he's given us this inheritance. Peter is saying, in light of that, we don't have to try to get all the gusto now. We are going to get, we have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. Christ, the chief most, he is our portion and everything else besides. There is a new and a real creation coming with mountains and trees and homes and sunsets and feasting and skin and bones and no death and no sin and no locks on doors. It's coming, and it's not going to end. And he is saying, therefore, you don't need to try to get all the gusto now. Send it forward. Give, give your life away because it's, not your, it's already been secured. It's not your life anyway. It's his. You're a steward. And everything that you need has now been given you in Jesus Christ. And so the thing about an inheritance in verse 4, that Peter says we have this inheritance that can't be taken away. If you spend your whole life trying to build up an inheritance here, you're going to lose it eventually, and it can get stolen from you. It can corrode, right? The stock market can drop. There goes your 401k, um, and on and on it goes. But this inheritance, Peter said, is indestructible. It's kept by God for you. And what's the thing about inheritance? I said it earlier. Do you earn an inheritance? Do you work really hard for an inheritance? No, it's given to you. It's given to you by birth. We, the only way to receive this incorruptible inheritance is it's given to us with the open hand of faith by being born a second time in Jesus Christ as we look to him in all of his life for us and all of his death for us. We cannot earn it. We are given to it. We are made. It's caused by God. He's the one who chooses us, who causes us. 
who causes it and who gives who causes our new birth. How much how much did you have to do with your your birth parents? How much did you have to do with the fact that you exist? How much did you have to do with the fact that you were born? Zero. So Paul Peter could have there I did it. Peter could have just said you've been born again, but he actually goes on to say to make it explicit, you God has caused you. The Father has caused you to be given this new birth. This new birth. Just in case we missed it, right? He has done it, and we have, he is the one who chooses us, and because of that, we see him in his beauty, and we, we say, oh, Lord, forgive them. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. Come and forgive us. I'm yours. And that's the kind of language that Peter uses here. Inheritances are not earned. We're born into them. And we, to be born again, and we must be born again, if there is going to be any meaning and any lasting significance in our lives, um, it, is, it, is, it is through Jesus Christ. It is because of him and alone. Um, okay, so lastly, skipping a, a little bit, but lastly, um, born again to a living hope, point two, point three, Peter, we can't leave off here, uh, without saying, without saying this, this, a little bit about this point, necessary suffering, point three, necessary suffering. Um, you notice here in verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. They've tested the genuineness of your faith. Just a few things about suffering. One, suffering ultimately can't hurt us, is what Peter is saying, if we are in Christ. Um, it cannot touch our invincible hope or our identity as a chosen people, pilgrims for now, who are not just passing through, right? Um, our suffering can only help us. It makes us like him. It makes us long for him more. It readies us for the new creation to come, and that's coming even now. So, like I just read, Peter says, if necessary. So, various trials are necessary. They're necessary. This is the opposite. I think everything in American culture, we try to avoid suffering. Now, we don't seek it out. It's going, that's masochism. It's going, there's enough suffering in this world. It will come to you. It will come to you. Um, but this is the opposite, having necessary trials with the, with the guiding hand of an almighty loving creator who's pledged himself to us and giving us his very, his very son and his very self. This is the opposite of random and purposeless suffering. Suffering is like the surgeon's scalpel if we're, if we're in Jesus. All the pain is perfectly directed. The cutting, it's needed for our eventual healing. Why? Verse 7. He says we've been, we're being tested by this suffering. Our faith is forged. Um, like a forge where uh, the heat rises and the impurities therefore rise to the surface, right? Suffering reveals things in us that God takes away. He scrapes those things away and he makes us more like his son Jesus. He's the master blacksmith. There's this wonderful tacit message, this implied message that we can take for granted. Suffering is not a sign. Think about, think about the apostle Paul. Think about Jesus. Think about Peter writing this, this letter here to this suffering church in the middle of this Roman Empire where Nero was, by the way, the emperor at this time. He was making Christians human tiki torches for his garden parties. Um, suffering is not a sign that you are not his or that he is displeased with you. On the contrary, it's often a sign that you are his and that he loves you and is perfecting you and he's making you more like Jesus. Let this encourage those of you who are suffering now because you follow him. Um, so that's one of the things that actually led some people to doubt Paul's apostleship is that he was suffering. He had so much suffering in his life. And Peter and Paul just explode this. And Jesus, because Jesus explodes it, he steps down and does the will of the Father without any sin. He suffers more than anyone. Job suffered in the Old Testament because he was righteous. God uses it. Flannery O'Connor said, sickness is more, in, who was herself very sick and died at age 39, I believe. 
sickness is more instructive than a long trip to Europe. I'll take this, I'll take this trip to Europe. Thank you very much. But sickness is more instructive than a long trip to Europe. Let us, let us know that God is in charge of it and that he will use it, especially as we lay, uh, lay prostrate here and let him do his work. Suffering makes us able uh, to help others who suffer. When we lost our first child, Christian Joy, in seminary, um, the people that helped us the most, that came the most uh, forthrightly and hugged us and cried on our shoulder and let us cry on their shoulder and gave us food. That was basically the, the ministry of presence, of hugging and me more than Robin. Robin's less of a hugger, but ministry of presence, of hugging, and of food. Robin loves food even more than I do, and that's a lot. Um, if you ever wonder what her love language is, it's food. Just bring her some good food. Uh, the more meat, the better. Um, and uh, were the people that had lost children. People that lost children, they'd been there. It, it gave them the ministry. They knew what to do. Um, it's the only time I'll ever quote Tony Robbins, so enjoy it now. Uh, I, he said, I've gone through the darkest, scariest places, and because of that, I can lift people out of those places. Now, he said that, and he does a lot of good. I also disagree with him fundamentally on a lot of levels. He's a self-help guy. Um, but he, there's a sense in which he can connect to people on a deep level and meet them where they are because he himself has suffered. And that's really, if that's not a picture of Jesus, I don't know what is. The fact that Almighty God chose to suffer more than anyone ever will, even those in hell, because he took hell for every single person who would listen. He knows our suffering, and he cared, and he is using it. He is close to us, and he is using it for our good. Um, Alan Redpath, it, it also uh, it readies us for God's service. Alan Redpath um, said, soberly commented, when God, bless you, when God wants to do an impossible job, he takes an impossible man or woman and crushes it. My, my sister says it this way. She says, special people get special treatment. And all of God's children are special. And he will use us as the master of his, of his shop that he says we are. Um, and just thinking about Peter who wrote this, he literally said to Jesus basically, no, your plans to save the world cannot involve suffering. Certainly not death. No, no, no. And what did Jesus say to him? Like, thanks for caring about me, buddy. I appreciate that. The opposite, right? He said, hey, Satan, get behind me. This man ended up, and he, ended, and he went on against his denials to deny Christ three times before the cross. And the, because of what Jesus did for him in hanging on that cross, coming to live inside of him by his spirit, Peter became alive. And Peter, when he was told two years after writing this letter, right after writing 2 Peter, in Rome, when he was told, we're going to crucify you for your faith in Jesus Christ, this is a man who says in this text, blessed are you who have never seen Jesus and yet you love him. And, and what he's thinking is, and I have seen him and I love him so much, but I denied him. But because he is in me and because of his strength and what he's done and his conquest of death and his invincible love for me and his spirit in me, Peter was told we were going to crucify you. And he said, yeah, but can you do it upside down? Because my master, I cannot be, cru I cannot be killed in the same way as my master. I'm not, I'm not worthy. So crucify me upside down. And Peter was crucified upside down because of his great love for his master. Jesus says to us, the love of Jesus Christ changed us especially through suffering. Jesus says to us, pick up your cross and follow me. And if you don't deny all to follow me, you cannot be my disciple. 
So briefly, just by way of application and review, and then we're done. Thank you for hanging with me here. Um, resident sojourners. Tim Keller gives these four things. He says two of them are sort of left, and two of them are kind of right, traditionally embraced. And he says, look, Christians should be befuddling everyone. We shouldn't be able to be put in a political category, right? So he says we ought to be known as for care for the poor, number one. Sadly, traditionally, it's, it's something that the left uh, is more known for, although, and then the right less so, perhaps, depending on your political philosophy. Care for the poor, we ought to be known as Christians, our care for the poor, our self-sacrificial extreme care for the poor and, our, and racial justice. Those two things are typically things that the, the, the left embraces as the omen, right? Care for the poor and racial justice. But also we ought to be known on the other side, okay, which is it's, Christ, it's all Christ, for being pro-life in every way and pro-monogamous, fourthly, pro-monogamous heterosexual marriage. And I would add to that pro two fixed genders, male and female, not because we want to judge that's not our place because that is God's created order. And that is the best in any other way leads to death. And yet our arms are open wide as Christ went on the cross and said, come, come, you come to us. We love you. This is the way that he's made us to be. So care for the poor, racial justice. We ought to be known for these two things, typically things on the left and then being pro-life unabashedly and pro-monogamous heterosexual marriage and pro two fixed genders, male, male and female. And so we ought to be kind of offending everyone and kind of bursting everyone's categories and also People ought to be like, man, these, these people love us regardless of how we treat them. They love us so well on both sides. So how do we characterize them? Look at the big picture. Let's be contrite. There's something different about them that's contrite. Um, so we should neither assimilate nor isolate. This is just review, right? We, to assimilate is to, to be com- totally in the culture but totally like the culture is to plunder the culture. This is Christopher Watkins' insight. To be totally like the culture is just to say, I'm going to take everything this culture has to offer me. I'm going to use it. I'm, I'm devouring everything it has to give to me. I'm plundering the culture. I'm using it. To isolate, though, is to judge it and to hate it. I want nothing to do with it. Neither has really any good effect on the culture. We love it but don't need it. Our identity is elsewhere, secure in Jesus. We love it enough to critique it, to hate the evil and the ruin that we see in it, to give our lives for it, to enhance it, to beautify it, just like Jesus did for us in this world, in this creation. He neither assimilated to us, thank God, we wouldn't have a Savior if he had, nor did he isolate himself from us. He entered into our pain and misery, and he died on a Roman cross for us. He came down, and he died, and now he's risen. Um, okay. So Peter ends by reminding us how lucky, how blessed, I should say, we are to be on this side, as I close, of, of death. Uh, the death and the resurrection of God's son, rather. In the new creation, these last days, this end times, Paul says. I mean, Peter says, here it is again. Um, The only age or stage left in this age is is that of Christ's return. We are in the last days. We are in this final final era. And and we, he says, at the last part of this text, he says, the prophets wrote about and searched the scriptures to see when it was that Christ would come and how God was going to begin the process of making all things new. And he says, we are the beneficiaries of that. We're on this side of the cross. We see what God has done. We have this living hope inside of us, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, they wrote these things down for us. Um, these things that are clear as the new day of the, new, of the resurrection, um, they wrote these things down for us to see, to understand, to believe on, and to live into. And he finishes by saying, these are things that even angels, um, he uses a word that can, he uses other places for lust, but it doesn't mean lust here. They long. They, they, they crave.
trained to look into these things. And, and one commentator says that this privilege of being birthed by God is something that not even angels have. That's what Mark Grady says. It's, not a, it's something that not even angels have been given, but rather immigrants, sons of Adam, sons of Eve, who are, who are given the chance of being reborn in Christ Jesus. So the incarnation, the death and resurrection of the Son of God is the hinge of history. It changes everything in all our certain hope and reality. Let's pray and then move to communion. Lord, I thank you so much for, um, for your word. I thank you for our living hope that is Jesus.